Welcome to the Well Studying Podcast. This is episode 211. Today is December 14th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. We are almost at the end of the year, and this has been a pretty amazing year in the stock market. We're going to talk about that today. Really, what I want to talk on is a carryover to what we talked about in the previous episode. I still expect this Trump rally to fade. Speaking of that, I want to give a shout out to one of my clients, Paula. She had a really good quote, and I'm not sure where she heard it from. I wish I had thought it up myself because it is exactly where my mindset is on this whole rally that's going on right now. The quote was that you should buy the election and sell the inauguration. And I think that's kind of how this might play out because the bottom line is, although we're getting a new president, we still have all the same old problems. So we're going to talk about those today. I'm not going to I'm going to try anyways not to digress or dwell too much on these because these are the same systemic problems that I've been talking about for, you know, for years. It's what's crippling the economy and it is what has made me so gun shy all year long because I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Now, I'm not calling for an economic collapse. That's the farthest thing from my mind, but we do face unprecedented uncertainties and the problems that we do know that we have, well, they work themselves out in a very characteristic way. And that's why I've been cautious and that's why I remain cautious. Now, before I get into all this, I do want to do just a a real quick announcement here. I want to continue with my ongoing apology for not getting out more content. I appreciate all of you that keep emailing me and, and prodding me along. I know some of you thought maybe I left the country and I was moving to Canada. Others of you thought perhaps I've been living in Canada for the past eight years and I'm moving back. Rest assured, I'm not going anywhere. But with all that's been going on in the markets and then the other projects I have going on in my life, it's just eaten up my free time, which is generally when I do my podcasts. And I just uh, have not had enough hours in the day. I I did want to fill you in on something, though, because I know many, many of you have asked. I've been working on several projects, but one of the ones that I can tell you about now, and it's one that's been eating up so much of my time, is that I've been working on a book. About six months ago, I was approached by a publisher to write a book. I liked the concept and the the topic. Uh, This is not an investing book. Obviously, I'm an investor. That's what I do. That's what I love. So a large percentage of the book is going to be about investing. It kind of works out that way, but it is not in and of itself an investing book. It's about a very timely topic. I don't want to get into all that now, but I've been writing that book, doing my research for it. I submitted the manuscript. It's been accepted. So a lot of the hard things I I was working through are now done. However, I'm now working with the publisher and their editor to get through the editing process. That could be a very arduous task uh, because of the timeliness of, of this topic. They want this book to hit the markets, um, you know, around like the end of March. So if you've ever been involved in, in publishing, you know, these are some really tough deadlines. I'm sure this is going to continue to suck up a lot of my time. But uh, again, that's that's one of the reasons why the podcast content has been so lacking. I'll share more about the book as, as we go along. But I've really missed being behind the microphone, and I want to get at this. I've got three or four topics lined up here, too, that hopefully in quick succession we can get a lot of shows in before the end of the year. Okay, anyways, enough about that, enough about me. Listen, bottom line on today's episode, yes, we have a new president, and whether you love him or you hate him, it doesn't matter. As I've always said, I don't care who's in the White House. I'm more concerned about what's happening within my own house. And my goal in 2017, 2018, 2020, no matter who the president is, my goal is to always make more money. So whether you 
love or hate Mr. Trump. It doesn't matter. But the bottom line is just because we have a new president doesn't mean those same old problems have gone away. And let's just go right to the source on all this. Let's listen to President-elect Trump a few months ago during the presidential election, during the campaign when he was still candidate Trump. Listen to what he said. Typical politician, all talk, no action, sounds good, doesn't work, never going to happen. Our country is suffering because people like Secretary Clinton have made such bad decisions in terms of our jobs and in terms of what's going on. Now, look, we have the worst revival of an economy since the Great Depression. And believe me, we're in a bubble right now. And the only thing that looks good is the stock market. But if you raise interest rates even a little bit, that's going to come crashing down. We are in a big, fat, ugly bubble. And we better be awfully careful. And we have a Fed that's doing political things. This Janet Yellen of the Fed. The Fed is doing political by keeping the interest rates at this level. And believe me, the day Obama goes off and he leaves and he goes out to the golf course for the rest of his life to play golf, when they raise interest rates, you're going to see some very bad things happen because the Fed is not doing their job. The Fed is being more political than Secretary Clinton. He makes some very accurate points in that little diatribe right there. And, and I would argue that's why he got elected. But those issues he talked about, they haven't gone away with him being elected. In fact, they're being fulfilled. They're, they're coming to fruition. Right now, as I record this podcast, uh, the Federal Reserve is releasing their, they're doing their press release for their uh, open market committee meeting. They're raising interest rates by 25 basis points. That's exactly what Trump was talking about as to, you know, in his interpretation, it was a political thing and it doesn't really matter one way or the other. But he was exactly saying that, you know, whenever the next president comes into office, they're going to start raising rates and that's going to have a crippling effect. Those are some of the things I want to talk to you about in today's episode. But let's let's start with Mr. Trump. And I want you to keep in mind what he just said during that diatribe, because you're going to hear those things come up again and again. And then also, although I have a long laundry list of things that I'm going to go through here, they are all interrelated. The correlation on all the problems is something like I've never seen before. And, and it, again, is why I've been concerned all year long. And although I do see some silver linings to the cloud, I thought that things would have been worked out sooner than they are. And for those reasons, I still remain hesitant. So first of all, let's look at this stock market rally. It doesn't surprise me at all that we're seeing a, a post-election rally. The magnitude and the timing of it does surprise me based on all the negative things we heard about Donald Trump. First of all, I didn't expect him to win. This was like the, the, the Brexit. I didn't expect the Brexit to go through. I personally thought it would be better for the, uh, the, the British people if they pull away from the European Union. I just never thought that have enough votes to pull it off. Likewise with Trump, I'd actually uh, you know, wanted to see someone like him come in and stir things up. I just never thought he'd really get elected. But like I continue to say all through the primaries, he continues to surprise people. No one ever thought he was going to make it through the initial phases of the primaries. He did all the wrong things by the normal Republican playbook. And yet he kept winning and winning, and he ended up getting more primary votes than, than any other Republican ever had before. And the reason that we have Donald Trump, just like the reason we have the Brexit, is because although maybe on the surface things look pretty smooth, there are some deep undertoes to this economy from which we've never recovered from the financial crisis in 2008. So the only thing that's really improved since the election is the uncertainty of the election is gone. 
Now, if you were like me and you were staying up late uh, on Tuesday night, November 8th, I think it was, as we saw Trump keep winning and winning, the futures market and the overseas markets that were open were going down. The S&P 500 futures markets, uh, you know, way in the wee hours in the morning, sold off about five or six percent. Now, a lot of people were saying that's because Trump was going to become president, and that was not the case. The reason, in my opinion anyways, that we saw such a decline in the future mark, in the futures markets that evening was because of the uncertainty of it. We could have ended up with another uh, hanging chad situation like we had between Gore and Bush in 2000, where we go you know, for months and not know who the president is. It's that uncertainty that the markets don't like. Wednesday morning, when the U.S. markets opened up, they didn't open down. They opened up, and they've pretty much been up ever since. So the markets weren't afraid of Trump. They were just initially afraid of the uncertainty if it was going to be a, a hung election. But right now, I think we just have way too much exuberance following this election because the only thing that's different is that we now know who the winner is. Nothing else is going to change. Absolutely, I believe that Trump can bring some big changes to things. Everything from the Supreme Court to who's on the Federal Reserve to all kinds of other, uh, other appointments. If you look right now with just the people he's appointing or likely to appoint in his cabinet, He's way off the reservation with what's traditionally been done. He has three generals serving in his cabinet now, or that are likely to serve. Obviously, they have to go through nominations and things. But he's got three generals. Supposedly, he wanted General Petraeus to be Secretary of State, but he didn't want to have a fourth general in there because he thought it was too much. He's definitely taking a different path than what others have taken. I mean, even with these generals that he's picked... And I haven't heard anybody in the media point this out, but it's striking to me that of the three generals he's picking, two of them are Marine generals. Now, what's so amazing about that, and if you're not familiar with the military, you may not know this, but the Marine Corps, is it, it's a corps. I mean, it's a, it's a branch of the Navy. It's not its own armed service. It's a very, very small organization. There's only something like 190,000 Marines on active duty, not like the million you're going to have in the Army or the Air Force. It's a very, very small group of men and women. And when you get to the general ranks, it's, it's, it's desolate. I, I think by law, the Marine Corps is only allowed to have something like 80 generals serving on active duty at one time. So you have, uh, you know, maybe three generals. you got the Commandant of the Marine Corps. He's a four-star general. Then he's got a, a couple counterparts. Then you have another handful of three-star generals. you got maybe about a dozen two-star generals. And I think you have probably about, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 brigadier one-star generals. And so you add all that up, and you, you get about 80 generals. Well, that's a very, very small amount of brass when you look at, you know, the, the number of admirals in the Navy or the number of generals in the Army or the Air Force. And so when Trump goes out and he not only picks three generals, but two thirds of them are Marine generals, that's pretty unique. I mean, the other unique thing about what he's doing is he's putting in Rex Tillerson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, as the Secretary of State. I mean, what an out of the box decision is that? And I'm not saying it's going to be good or bad one way or the other, but think of that. The CEO of the world's largest privately held oil company is going to be the Secretary of State particularly at a time like this, when we have major negotiations uh, that are going on and need to go on with Russia and in the Middle East, and we've got an oil man there. I mean, you knew what kind of fits the left had over George Bush and his oil connections and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld's ties to, to Halliburton. 
How often can you, in your memory, go back and remember when someone like the CEO of ExxonMobil is the Secretary of State? I mean, it's not something that happens every day. This is going to be an amazing four years to watch. And I think it's going to be full of a lot of uncertainties, and the market does not like uncertainties. And speaking of uncertainties, the only sure thing we have with the Trump presidency is he's constantly shooting off his mouth. And again, I'm not saying that I do or don't agree with a lot of the things he says, but that's that's beside the point. It's just the way he does it, the brashness of it, and then the way, you know, currently he's been going through things like Twitter and bypassing the traditional media. Now, if I was in his situation, I would be doing the same thing. It's very effective. It's how he became president. If you go back and you look and see what he spent, not only of his own money, but even of money that he raised, he has spent less than any modern candidate by a long shot. And he's done that by bypassing the media and going direct to his audience. And, and while that's a great thing, and again, I'm not, I'm not uh, disagreeing with that strategy. I'm just saying that from a stock market perspective, that can be very uncertain. Look at the tweets that he's created some firestorms over. And again, this isn't just about him. Hillary Clinton did the exact same thing. While she was a candidate, it was her tweet about the pharmaceutical companies that caused those stocks to plunge. And so you're seeing the same thing with Donald Trump. He'll come out one day, criticize Boeing. You know, Boeing stock, it ended up hitting an all-time high. But that one day when he criticized it about a week ago, it fluctuated 11% just during that day. Now, when he comes out and criticizes the F-35 program, then we see, you know, Northrop Grumman and these other companies, their stocks go down. Right after Trump got elected, we saw pharmaceutical companies doing really well for, you know, the first couple of weeks. People are saying, oh, Hillary Clinton's out of it. Healthcare and pharmaceutical companies are going to be able to charge whatever they want. It's going to be fine. Well, I didn't jump in on that rally because I was worried about exactly what happened. It didn't take too long for Trump to come out and criticize the profits of these pharmaceutical companies. And what happened? Well, they're right back down again. You know, right now, everybody's jumping on the, the, uh, the banking financial sector. They're, they're buying these financial companies. The financial companies have been underperforming for the last eight years. So it does make sense that eventually that trend is going to turn around. I don't argue with that. But just because Trump has, you know, key guys from Goldman Sachs going to Washington, it doesn't mean it's going to solve all the banking problems that, that the financial industry has. The problems that are affecting the banking companies, yes, some of it has to do with regulations, some of it has to do with lower interest rates, but it also has to do with things like contagion problems of, of what might happen if Asian or if Southern uh, European banks go under and how that might tie back into our big banks that are too big to fail. Or even on a regional basis with the regional banks, there's still a lot of real estate out there that's underwater. There are a lot of loans that are out there for the energy industry that, that are still underwater, even despite the fact that oil prices are recovering. And even if regulations and things like that do make it easier for people to get loans, well, how is that going to help these young millennials that are just totally strapped for cash? They can't afford to buy houses. These uh, real estate in these major metropolitan areas where a lot of these millennials are gravitating to, the real estate is just sky high. It's way overinflated, and they can't afford to make a mortgage payment with the current low interest rates. And even if they could, they're all tapped out because so many of them have a large percentage of their debt load in student loan debts. We've got, what, what 1.2, $1 1.3 trillion dollars or something in student loan debt? 
Well, until a politician comes along and forgives and writes all that off, which I'm sure someday they will, I, I honestly, for the life of me, I don't know who was advising Hillary Clinton, but that's one of the planks that I would have run on if I was her. I just said the first day in office, I'm going to forgive everybody's student loan debt. She'd have had people coming out of the woodwork to vote for her. So these problems aren't going away. And even if Trump can fix them because he puts smart people in or because he has Wall Street people or generals or even if he just does a bunch of executive orders, you know, you can't turn this big battleship of a country and an economy around on a dime. The only thing that he's going to be able to have immediate impact on is going to be tax cuts for both individuals and corporations and then for repatriating the trillions of dollars that is sitting overseas from, you know, big companies like Apple. Yes, I do believe that that could have an immediate impact to the economy, but it's not a long-lasting one, and it could be countered by rising interest rates and rising energy prices. I mean, look at where we are. People forget, but go back two years, two and a half years ago, oil was averaging $110, $120 a barrel, right? And then all of a sudden, it now it's down at 50 and it was below 50 that put a lot of money back in people's pockets for them to spend on other things. And yet, look at how the economy has still struggled over these last two years. I think the impact of lower oil prices put more money in people's pockets than these tax cuts are going to. So while I'm definitely not opposed to tax cuts, and I sure hope I can get my percentage of them, I just don't think it's a fix-all for all the problems. And then when you start looking at the things that Trump may have an impact on, I, again, just looking at ExxonMobil is going to have a guy in the State Department negotiating with the Russians. There's a lot that can be going on there from the way that energy is handled, energy policy to you know possible colluding on the price of oil. If you look at our traditional allies in the Middle East, we've pretty much been fighting a, a proxy war with, with Russia in the Middle East since the 1970s. There's a lot of geopolitical things that could be going on between Russia and the Middle East and oil, and all those have a huge impact on the economy. And then you throw in a strengthening relation with the U.S. and Russia and what that might do to U.S.-Chinese relations. You see what the, the, the ruckus that Trump has already set off with taking a, a phone call from the president of Taiwan and saying that he doesn't necessarily have to respect a one-China policy. I mean, these are all things, again, whether they're good or bad, are indifferent in terms of how the stock market's going to react. If Trump is, in fact, going to go in and be an agent of change, if he's going to try and move the country and the economy in a different direction that's been headed in the last eight years, that's going to create a great deal of opportunity, but it's also going to create a great deal of pain. And that's just if he does things the traditional way. But with him being so far off the reservation, we just don't know what we're going to get. Now, you heard Donald Trump just earlier in this podcast when I played his quote. He talked about how we're in a big, ugly bubble, and when interest rates go up, this economy isn't going to be able to support it. Well, that's been one of my concerns for a long time. I've always felt, on the one hand, that the Federal Reserve and the central banks all around the world were artificially keeping down the, the price of the cost of money. Generally, the 10-year Treasury tracks very well with the nominal GDP growth rate. And so when you look at how our nominal GDP growth has been going in the United States, our 10-year Treasuries should have been, you know, we can argue the point, but somewhere between, say, 35 to 4.5% yields is what they should have been paying. Well, we've seen rates getting down to, this summer, they went down like 1.35. Currently, they're around 25 
So we're working our way back up to where they should be, but they're still significantly below what a historical valuation would be. And so consequently, that's why we have these bubbles in the stock market. That's why the asset prices of companies that pay dividends have, have exploded beyond what they reasonably should be. That's why the, the real estate bubble got reinflated, you know, which was exactly the reason that the Federal Reserve held down the interest rates to begin with. But at some point, there has to come a time when you allow market forces to take over again. You know, right now, today, as I'm recording this podcast, the Federal Reserve is announcing that they're going to raise the interest rates by 25 basis points. That's 0.0025. Now, what's truly amazing about this is that although we've been hearing them jawbone about raising interest rates for all these years now, they've only raised interest rates twice in the last decade, literally in the last 10 years. I'm not exaggerating. They raised them exactly a year ago by 25 basis points, and they told us how the economy was improving last year, and they expected to raise rates four times in 2016. They told us that a year ago, uh, pretty much this week, and what happened? Well, we saw the market take a double dip in January and February. In the beginning of February 2016, right around February 10th, February 11th, we saw the price of, of oil go down to about $28 a barrel. And that was because Wall Street went into a panic thinking that they were going to get four interest rate raises, which would, again, only really take us up back to where the market probably should be anyways. It's something that hadn't happened in 10 years. And so there's so much pain affiliated with that that the markets took a temper tantrum. And so consequently, what did you see? Well, the Federal Reserve didn't raise interest rates. They raised them last December. They waited throughout the election to raise them again now that the election's over. And that's exactly what Donald Trump was talking about. But, you know, now that he's president or now that he's going to be president, you don't hear him say, oh, interest rates are going to blow this bubble apart and the market's going to collapse. No, they never tell you that. When they're in charge, they always are going to err to the side with the rose-colored glasses. They're going to tell you how great things are going to be. Again, I'm not predicting an economic collapse. Far from it. I'm excited about 2017. I think we're finally getting to the point where I wish we were a year ago, where there are going to be some great investing opportunities where the odds are not lopsided against you. All this past year, I've said, hey, the market could go up 5 or 6%. No doubt. Absolutely, it could. But what I was worried about was a 20 or 25% pullback, which looked, uh, from a statistical standpoint, much more likely. That's because there were so many landmines out there that you could get you could step in. Well, some of those might be clearing up a little bit, but we still might have to get that 20% pullback before we get an all clear. I know that the market's full of uncertainty. I've been investing for 30 some years, so I don't ever pretend that I have a crystal ball and can predict the market. I have absolutely no idea what's going on in the future. No one does, but I can still look at what's happening today. Just like storm clouds, I can look outside. I don't have to be a meteorologist. I can look up in the sky and say, oh, it looks like it's going to rain today. I better bring an umbrella. Well, you don't know with 100% certainty if it's going to rain or not, but you take the precautions. And these storm clouds have been hovering overhead all through this past year, and they're continuing now. They haven't blown over just yet. And while I'm never afraid to take risk, I just don't want to take the risk when I think there's more chance of losing than there is of winning. That's why I've been so cautious. I'm not offering you advice. I'm simply telling you what I do and how I trade and how I protect my money. I tell you what I do. Hopefully it educates you and it allows you to make more informed decisions. 
What did we see last year? We saw the Federal Reserve raising interest rates the first time in 10 years and then saying they were going to do it four more times over the next 12 months and the markets crashed. What happened today? They raised interest rates 25 basis points just like last year and now they're saying the economy's strong again. We're going to raise rates three more times over the next 12 months. Does that mean the market's going to crash? Does that mean Wall Street's going to take another temper tantrum? I don't know, but I get back to what I said earlier. The millennials were not buying houses four months ago when we were at all-time historic lows in mortgage rates. They weren't buying houses then because they were too strapped with things like student loan debt, high real estate prices, and real wages that, that really just haven't gone up in 50 years. So fast forward now, six, seven months, you know, where we are now, or even 12 months into the future. How are those same millennials that still have all that student loan debt, that still do not have a great deal of earning power, how are they going to be able to afford to buy houses when interest rates are maybe 4 or 5% when they couldn't afford them when they were at 3%? Now, maybe they will come in and they'll loosen up loan requirements and we'll get back to the subprime loans of what we saw in the early 2000s. Maybe that will happen. And if that happens, hey, yeah, I'm sure the bubble will go on another three or four years. But just like we saw it pop in 2008, it will pop again if that's the course they take. Personally, I don't think that's what they're going to do. And that's why I don't see, you know, a whole lot more strength in the real estate market or even in the financial market for that matter. I just don't see the capacity for the loans. And that's not even taking into account all the bad debt and non-performing loans that we're seeing in Europe and in Asia. The other thing I want to point out, and this is something I've been hammering away hard for the last two years, and again, why I'm getting a little bit more optimistic about the future, and it's about interest rates. Now, 10 years ago, when I was swing trading, I would have maybe you know, bought into the market when I thought things were going up. I'd say I'd buy into the, the S&P 500 or something, and then I'd pull my money out. And if I thought I was going to sit out for a while, rather than keeping it purely in cash or in a money market fund, I you know, perhaps would have invested in a bond fund because a bond fund is going to pay you substantially more interest than you're going to get in a money market fund. Well, I haven't done that in a long time, and particularly in the last three years, because I've been so concerned about interest rates going up. Whenever you go for 30, 35 years of decreasing interest rates, and you get to the point where you're either, in the case of the United States, near zero interest rates from the central bank, or when you look at Europe or, or Japan, where they're actually in negative interest rates, when you get to that level, you have to say, well, you know, at some point you go too low. You hit bottom, and things start to regress to more of a historical mean. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to go to double digits or even to 7 or 8% like we saw you know, just 15 years ago. Those those interest rates, I do think, were an aberration. I think the last 35 years were an anomaly from where interest rates should be if you look at you know the last 200 years. And so I don't, unless we have runaway inflation, I don't think we're going back to 7, 8, 9% yields on the 10-year Treasury. But I do certainly think that it should be somewhere tracking with nominal GDP, which would put it at you know 3 or 4%. And so when interest rates are significantly below 2%, and they really, from a market standpoint, should be at 4%, that's a great deal of overhead risk. Because remember, when interest rates go up, that means the principal in your bond fund goes down. And that's exactly what we've seen take place over the last six months. Interest rates are now up around 2.5%. They hit an all-time historic low around, I think it was mid-July, so about six months ago. 
And from that high till today, they're down significantly. So that if you were invested in a bond fund, for example, if you were in TLT, which is very well respected and a highly liquid, probably, probably the best bond fund you can be in, TLT. It tracks a 20-year U.S. Treasury. It's one of the safest things you can own. But as you've heard me say for the last two years, bond funds are not safe in and of themselves. They can lose money. People don't understand that because for the last 30 years, they pretty much haven't. They pretty much always go up. So they pay you a dividend, plus they appreciate in value. But now that maybe interest rates are starting to creep back up, that's going to change. And if you bought TLT earlier this summer because you thought it was a safe trade, let's say that you sold the stock market, you know, you took your profits and you said, hey, I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to put it in a bond fund and just ride out the election. Well, had you done that, TLT's lost like 17% since July. 17% loss. That's in a bond fund. There are, there are a lot of older people out there, and I know because I hear from them. They're not my clients. They're just people that contact me. And they say, hey, I'm in bonds and I'm losing money. Well, absolutely, because you're in a bond fund that's going to have a depreciating principle every time interest rates go up. And this is even for people that are uh, in balance funds. A lot of people say, hey, I'm taking some money off. I'm going to put you know, 50% in a bond fund. I'm going to put 50% in the stock market. And they're, they're breaking even right now because, yes, their stock market portfolio went up, but their bond portfolio went down. That's why for the last two years in particular, I've been very much focused on staying in cash, meaning, meaning that I'm in a, a money market fund. Yeah, I know I'm not making any interest on it, but I'm also not taking that risk premium of having the principle of a bond fund go down. When I say that I'm encouraged, though, is, you know, now rates are, say, at two and a half. Well, if we do see them get up to 3% or maybe even 4%, that's about where they should be. And so that encourages me because if we do get to a place where market rates are around where they should be and I don't have to worry about them doubling overnight or doubling just because of an election and I'm going to lose 20% of the value of my bond fund, if I don't have to worry about that, that means that I can swing trade back into bond funds. And so when I'm not trading in the stock market, I can have my money in a bond fund where I'm making 3 or 4% for doing nothing, just letting my money sit there. Because right now, if I'm sitting in a money market fund, my money's safe, but I'm not making any dividend or interest on it. And so if we get to the point where we do get to more of a market-based interest rate on the 10-year treasury, we can start getting some value on our money even when we have it parked in a safe place. That's not something you've been able to do for the last three years. So I'm very optimistic about that. And that takes me on to something else that I'm, I'm getting optimistic about, and that's oil. Now, coincidental to this Trump rally... We're also seeing a rally in the price of oil. This has nothing to do with Trump, has nothing to do with the Trump presidency directly. Although when we see ExxonMobil moving into you know, the Secretary of State, uh, that only changed down the road. But for right now, the rally in oil has nothing to do with Donald Trump being president. In fact, I would argue that what he's announced so far could actually be bad for oil prices. But right now, over the last month, we've seen OPEC finally pull themselves together and reach out to other non-OPEC countries, and they've agreed to cut the production of oil. Let's call it somewhere around a 2% decrease in overall global oil production. Now, because of that, we saw oil moving up from you know around $48 a barrel. It's gotten all the way up to around, it hit 54 at one point earlier last week, but it's fallen back down again. As I record this, it's right around $52 a barrel. 
which was the high that we saw this past summer when we had the wildfires in Canada uh, that disrupted the, the oil coming out of Canada. And we had a military disruption because of some guerrilla fighting, militant fighting in Nigeria. That represented probably less than half of what OPEC's talking about cutting now. And yet the price of oil hasn't skyrocketed from what we saw this summer when we had those supply disruptions. And I think a lot of that reason is what I've said all along is that OPEC always cheats and they set these production limits after they ramp up their production. And then they say they're going to cut back. So it's really it's really not a cut. And then even with that, there's no real mechanism to punish anybody for pumping more oil. Historically, Saudi Arabia was the swing producer. They would cut back even if the smaller member states didn't just so they could keep a high price of oil. They can't do that anymore because of the shale oil that's being produced in the United States. Over the last decade, we've about doubled the production of our oil here in the United States. So whenever Saudi Arabia cuts back, we just pump more. We fill the void. I think that that's putting a cap on oil. Now, short of a war in the Middle East or some kind of major collusion, I don't think oil is going to get above you know, $60 a barrel. I think we're in this sweet spot of maybe $30 on the downside, $60 on the upside. Now, of course, if there's a big supply disruption, if there's a war in the Middle East, yeah, we could see $70, $80, oil. Absolutely. But at the same time, with the slowdown, any kind of recession in the economy and this oil glut that we have, we could also see prices fall significantly below $30. It can happen. But I, I do think that we are seeing some stability now. $30 on the downside, $60 on the upside. We need that stability because if oil goes below $30, it puts a lot of not only American companies that, that are producing shale oil, but a lot of the emerging markets or the commodity markets, the places like Venezuela that are, that are really their only exports oil, they can't pay their bills on really, really cheap oil. It isn't that the oil production is expensive. They can pump oil out of the ground for you know $8 a barrel, but they can't support the infrastructure of their countries. That's the same thing we see with Saudi Arabia. You know, Saudi Arabia's price at the pump on bringing oil out of the ground is probably you know, $5 a barrel, but they need like $95 to support the structure of their government. That's why Saudi Arabia is running deficits for the first time and having to burn through their cash reserves, their, their foreign currency reserves, because they can't function on oil when it's running at 40 or $50 a barrel. But I do think when we get to that point where, you know, just as interest rates around maybe 3 to 4% would be a stabilizing market factor, probably oil at 50 to $60 a barrel would be likewise. It would be enough where these governments that have been living high on the hog for the last 30 years, they could tighten their belts and maybe survive. Certainly the American oil companies, these wildcatters that have put so much investing in the shale oil business, they can certainly survive at $50, $60 a barrel. That's an argument that I was making two years ago when people were saying, oh, Saudi Arabia is going to put them all out of business and, and you know they're going to go bankrupt. I wasn't worried about them going bankrupt at $50 a barrel. I was worried about them going bankrupt at below 30 I knew that they could get their costs in line. I, we did a whole episode where we talked about Harold Hamm, that he started drilling for oil in North Dakota with fracking and things back in, in like the early 90s when, when oil was at $25 a barrel. So I knew that they could survive at that. And the good news about interest rates at around 3 or 4%, oil around $50 to $60 a barrel, that's very, very stabilizing and very affordable. Oil at $50 a barrel is, would be cheaper today on an inflation-adjusted basis than it was 25 years ago. Same thing with interest rates. 
I bought my first house in 1991. I had a 9% interest rate. And that was low at the time. I mean, that was below double digits. There were people with 14, 15, 16% interest rates on their mortgage. If we can get to a period where we have stable rates of around 3 or 4%, you know, on a 10-year treasury and that $50 to $60 on oil, that's just smooth sailing, I think, as far as the overall economy goes. But the point is, we're not there yet. I think oil's got another dip lower. If the economy starts to slow down or go into any recession, I see interest rates falling lower. I still see plenty of slowdown on the global basis. And as I said, all these things are interrelated. The slowdown in China, the slowdown in emerging markets, it all has to do with the petrodollar. I'm not going to go into that now. You can search on my website. We've had episodes about that, about how there's just less U.S. dollars on the marketplace than there ever were before because the price of oil was cut in half and because America started buying half as much because we were producing it here at home. That took petrodollars out of the global economy. That's why we've seen the dollar rising for the last two and a half years. And, and right now, I think uh, last time I checked, the dollar is at like a 14-year high. These are things that we've been talking about here in the Wellsteading podcast for, for years now. They're not changing. They haven't worked their way through the system yet. And while I do see things stabilizing and I'm starting to feel better that maybe this next shoe that drops will be the last one and we could have another nice extended bull run again, I'm still worried about that probability of that shoe dropping because if we get higher interest rates, it's going to hurt the consumer, it's going to hurt the restaurants, it's going to hurt the real estate market. If oil prices continue to go up, if this cartel from OPEC is, is able to, to, to pull off these 2% cuts, and incidentally, a year and a half ago or two and a half years ago, when oil prices got cut in half or more than half, when they went from above $110 a barrel down to below 40 that was because there was a 2% oversupply in the global markets. So if OPEC and non-OPEC countries now are saying they're going to take 2% off the market, we saw what a devastating effect 2% too much oil had. You can imagine how devastating an effect a 2% cut would have on the economy. I just don't think they're going to be able to pull it off. But if they do, and if oil gets up at $70, $80 a barrel, sure, that'll be good for emerging markets. That'll be good for the Middle East. But that'll be lousy for the American and the European consumer. And ultimately, those are the two markets that the factories in China are feeding. And so when the U.S. and Europe stops buying things, it'll just mean another slowdown in China. Bottom line is that I think we still have some rough patches to go through. I think there are, though, going to be some continuing opportunities. I see some real values in overseas stocks. They're not anything I'm going to jump on just yet because there's no telling what's going to come out of Trump's mouth or what he's going to tweet, and that can move any individual stock or even a stock sector by a good 10 to 20% just from one tweet. So I don't think it's safe to jump into those right now, and who knows? It, it may not be safe for the next four years. Something else I'm watching very closely, and we've talked about this before, I'm still not uh, buying in on a gold rally. You know, we did see gold prices raise earlier in the year. That was when Wall Street was having a temper tantrum about interest rates uh, not being raised. And we did see a, a, a boost up in gold, but that's all falling apart again. Gold's well back down below support at around 11 uh, 60 an ounce. I think, as I've been saying again for years now, as long as oil prices stay so low, low energy is correlated with precious metal prices, if nothing else, just because it makes it cheaper to get it out of the ground. Same thing with copper, iron ore. Those are all very labor intensive. It's labor intensive to mine them. It's labor intensive to refine them. When you have the bottom falling out of energy prices, you can't have escalating commodity prices. 
And so, yes, we've seen copper shoot up since uh, Trump's been elected, but we've also started to see that pull back a little bit. I don't see how these industrial base metals are going to be escalating and going on a bull market when you're seeing things like gold and silver declining in price. I mean, silver obviously is used as a precious metal, but most of its applications are in industry. So how can you have copper up, you know, 70% at the same time you're seeing silver decrease if we're supposedly going to have a big rally in the industrials? Because certainly in the high tech type environment that we live in, if copper prices are going up because copper is being used more in industrial applications, surely silver is being used just as much. The other thing that I'm really watching, and I mentioned this before, it's the relationship between gold and Bitcoin. Bitcoin continues to skyrocket. A year ago, Bitcoin was about $2.30. Today, Bitcoin's almost $780, $780 versus a couple hundred dollars a year ago. That's an extraordinary appreciation in Bitcoin. And it again, it plays into this whole thing that we're talking about. It's the devaluing money in Asia. It's the fear in, particularly in, in China, but all over the emerging markets. Uh, we're seeing money pour into Bitcoin. And this is a crucial point. People in China are choosing to take their money. And in the past, when they would have put it in gold, what are they doing today? Now they're putting it into a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. That's a big major shift. It creates a whole lot more uncertainties than we were traditionally used to because gold was a safe haven. Now it's going to Bitcoin. We're seeing the same thing in India. Don't have time to get into this episode, but uh, you've probably read about the uh, capital restrictions that's going on in India. They're even talking about uh, limiting their gold purchases over there. All that is just driving more and more money into Bitcoin. It's something that I think is too unstable to invest in. If you want to speculate, do some Las Vegas money. I'm sure you can have a lot of fun with Bitcoin, but I'm watching that closely and I'm watching to see if it can really sustain these prices. We know that Chinese economy tends to move into bubbles because there's just so much wealth there that, that uh, moves almost in lockstep with itself. And so while this big rush to get money out of China has inflated Bitcoin, I mean, really, it could, if you had a crisis in Asia, you could see Bitcoin back at $400. So I wouldn't invest in it, but it's an incredible speculation opportunity. Hey, we're running out of time. If you didn't look at the chart that I have over at investablewealth.com uh, that I mentioned in the last episode, that's where I compare the stock market rally that we're currently into what happened in 1980 when Ronald Reagan got elected. If you haven't seen that chart, um, I'll put a link in it in today's show notes, but it's over at investablewealth.com under observations and commentary. Look at that chart. I still think it's going to play out that way. Time will tell. We'll have to wait and see. In any case, I'm going to come back to you here just as quickly as I can with another episode. I want to talk to you about something that a lot of people have been asking about, and that's my experience with a health share versus health insurance. I've been part of a health share for quite a while now. I haven't ever had the opportunity to really say whether it was good or bad because, uh, you know, I paid my premium, but I never really needed to use it. Well, in recent months, someone in my household got sick and I did have to use it. So I do have a report on that. Come back to the next episode and I'll tell you all about my experience with a health share. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns. We have the worst revival of an economy since the Great Depression. And believe me, we're in a bubble right now. And the only thing that looks good is the stock market. But if you raise interest rates even a little bit, that's going to come crashing down. We are in a big, fat, ugly bubble. And we better be awfully careful. When they raise interest rates, you're going to see some very bad things happen. 
When they raise interest rates, you're going to see some very bad things happen. When they raise interest rates, you're going to see some very bad things happen.